You're listening to Reporters and Reported, a podcast from Cardiff University's School of Journalism, Media and Culture. In each episode, brought to you by the MA Broadcast Journalism students, we'll bring you insights and interviews with key people in the news industry. We'll examine the challenges, opportunities and threats facing journalism and get tips about the best way to follow a career in the media. This week, me, Beth Cruz and Fionn Clark will be talking to Carolyn Hitt. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so your, your career began in, in print media at the Western Mail and then you moved on to kind of broadcast. How do these two industries compare in this day and age, in your opinion? I think print's having a much tougher time for a start. Um, the obvious problems of monetizing content and the death of newspapers because of the advertising model isn't working. And also because uh, media has become far more democratised, so... Uh, the trust in traditional media, uh, particularly print media, has um, has kind of uh, wavered. Um, and I think it's much harder to be a print journalist than uh, to be in broadcast. But having said that, print is adapting. You know, you, it, it has moved online. But in terms of, in, in comparison between print and, say, in Wales, say Wales Online in comparison to the BBC, the BBC is subsidised by public money. Wales Online is a commercial enterprise. and There are obvious challenges there. But they are getting, you know, they'll say to you that, oh, we get a million hits even if we don't get more than 15,000 readers of the, of the print product. Mm-hmm. But, um, but we're still in a stage where, you know, what, will there be physical newspapers five, ten years down the line? Um, I, I'd hate to speculate. You've produced a huge variety of content over the years. Do you have any advice about balancing passion and the need to adapt to how the industry changes? There are certain areas I've loved to make programmes about, uh, women's history and sport in particular. But equally, over the years, I've had to adapt to not only just different ways of telling stories, but the people you pitch them to. Uh, commissioning regimes come and go. Um, and often you have to kind of get a hold on what their passions are um, and quite cynically exploit that, you know. Um, so there's, there is inevitably con- compromise. But I've tried to, you know, I think the one benefit of being independent and freelance is that I do things I want to do, hopefully, and I just try to convince people that they want to do them as well. Whereas if I was in a more kind of company structure or in-house, uh, you know, I'd be given projects to do. So, so it's that, it's kind of getting that balance right. But equally, you know, you, you can't just blindly go out and make whatever you like. You have to make it fit what the audience want, what the commissioner wants, um, and know that there's a market for that content. So you were the first woman to win the uh, Welsh Sports Hall of Fame Journalist of the Year Award. And in the talk, you described newsrooms kind of a few years ago as being a a pale male space. In what ways could sports journalism kind of now be more female inclusive? It could cover a lot more female sports for for a start. You know, there is the old adage of, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I think very few uh, until very recently, you know, you just haven't seen beyond athletics and gymnastics. You haven't seen female team sport on television or on the back pages hardly at all and also I'd love to see men reporting on female sport and women reporting on male sport so that it's not you know that you're not ghettoized once more that if you're a woman sports reporter somebody asked me well why don't you write only about women's rugby and I said well because I enjoy rugby per se um, so you don't want to be ghettoized either way either and it's you know I still think there's a long way to go in terms of sports representation whether you're an athlete who, you're not getting the same sponsorship deals even though you're you know uh, as as an impressive performer to the number of women working particularly in print sports journalism is is very low I think televisions are much more equal playing field pardon the pun in your talk you mentioned that you've written a column for 20 plus years as young broadcast journalists how do we produce journalism which is 
personal but won't give us issues with bias potentially? Well that's an excellent question because by definition being personal will be biased at some stage won't it? What I like to do is I like to look at a an issue, a topic, and start off with a personal anecdote. So immediately it's something I've experienced. For example, a column I wrote last year which which was which won an award, so it's been a, a kind of one that's been discussed a lot, came out of the Me Too issue. And I hadn't thought that this had touched me particularly. And then I sat down one day and I just listed, you know, from the age of 12 to 51, the incidents I'd experienced from being exposed to on a train or groped as a teenager, things I felt were fairly insignificant at the time. And then I look back and I looked at them cumulatively and thought, my God, you know, and this is just an average experience of, of a woman of my generation. So I used those experiences to explore the bigger picture of what was going on with the Me Too movement. And, and it kind of brought it home that, that those, you know, things that I almost dismissed as, well, this is part of being a female. Well, it shouldn't be part of being a female when you're 12 years of age, you know, or, or even or now. And it really shocked me going through that process. So, so as I say, it's, in terms of column writing, always use something personal to make a universal point because it, there's no point in being a columnist otherwise because people are there to... to they want to know what you think as a person, but they also want to know how it relates to them. When you started Parasol, the um, all-female production company, how did people respond? We were lucky in that all three of us already had worked in the industry a long time, so we were known. Wales is a fairly small place in terms of the independent sector. And because of watch language television being developed in the early 80s and the television landscape being opened up to independent production, Wales has always had a really kind of healthy and diverse independent production sector. So we knew most of the people in the in that world and and people were you know were pretty supportive because they knew we had a good track record. They knew we'd been through a challenging time in terms of the other company. Um, so they were supportive. But having said that, we did have to start again from scratch as a much smaller company to to, and to convince people that yeah we could still put on those big productions that we were known for. You mentioned that a lot of your other TV company success came from a poker show which hadn't really been done before. Do you have any tips about finding some kind of niche or USP in what is a very crowded market? It's the holy grail of everything we do is finding something no one's done before or finding a new way of doing something that lots of people have done before. You look at how kind of television formats almost eat themselves, don't they? And, you know, they kind of go off into all kind of mutations. I suppose with the poker, it it came down to a very simple element of problem solving. You know, why can't you watch poker on television? Because you can't show everybody what hands all the players have or you can't show the players themselves what hands they have. But if you're sitting at home, there would be a way of seeing them. And the glass table was just like this incredible breakthrough. And it's, it's terribly poignant because Rob Gardner, who was a genius, um, a young producer, uh, it was all his kind of work that went, went be, um, kind of created this. He worked very closely with in the poker world. And, and he died of cancer at 34, an absolute tragedy. But he worked very, very hard at it as well, you know. And um, similarly, when we did Only Connect, for example, which I didn't personally work on, but my colleagues did, I came up with a title that was my only contribution. We hammered out that format for months to see what worked and what didn't. You look at a program like The Chase, that'll have gone through probably several years of development to get that format perfected and to make sure it doesn't fall down at any point or or what's the weak round or whatever. So so while the initial kind of spark of inspiration is is a wow moment, then comes all the boring, boring graft to make sure that it, you know, it can be done. What advice would you give a broadcast journalist starting off in the sector? I would say, kind of said in the, in 
in the talk, you know, make make your passions your work, make work your passion. But just embrace what it is to be a broadcast journalist now with all those challenges, but how exciting it is. When I look back when I started out, um, there were things I could never have done that you can do quite easily. I couldn't make a radio program in my bedroom. I couldn't go off and make a television package entirely on my own. I'd have had to have a four-man crew, and it would have been an all-man crew as well. You know, hopefully today would be a camera woman helping or a sound person or whatever. So just embrace how exciting it is. And you probably can't get a handle on that because you, you're not as old as me. <laughs> so um, if you were my age looking, looking at you two sitting here today, I'd think, my God, I'm jealous. Carolyn, thank you.